what a difference a day can make. Welcome back to My Seminary Life. I'm your host, Brandon Knight, and we are now officially a network affiliate. Hey, check it out, folks. We are now a part of the Anazao Ministries podcast network. AMP is a collection of shows uh, devoted to asking and wrestling with the big questions. We might not always have an answer to the big questions, and each show wrestles with the big questions in different ways, but here we are, back for another exciting episode of My Seminary Life on a new network, a new platform, trying out a whole bunch of different things. Did you like the new theme song? I sure do. It's got like fun indie 2000 vibes to it, 2010 vibes to it. Let me tell you, I like it a lot. We're excited to be back. And now that we're on a network wrestling with big questions, hey, it makes sense that we're here to talk about one of the biggest questions that we can wrestle with. And that is the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. This is the second big question as we continue our study in Apologetics 101. For those of you joining us for the very first time, as this is the first new episode here on Anna Zhao, this is uh, My Seminary Life is a show where two years ago I started it to talk about the things I was studying in grad school as I was working on my Master of Arts in Ministry Studies, but now I'm done, and so I'm choosing topics that we probably should have covered in seminary, like Apologetics 101, and also making room for some fun series along the way as well. Here in the summer, going to be doing a deep dive into the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But right now, like I said, we're covering a, a subject that surprisingly did not have to take a class on in seminary, and that is apologetics. So last week on the show, we talked about one of the two big questions, and that the question being, does God exist? How do we as, uh, as Christians, as apologists, how do we give an answer and defend and persuade this belief that we have that there is a God? How do we do that? Today, we're going to wrestle with the second big question that comes up in apologetics, and that is the topic of the problem. What's the deal with evil, pain, and suffering? And I'm going to say this up front, and those of you hopefully will maybe come along, come around to agree with me here at the end that somehow this is actually the harder question. Compared to last week, last week, if you missed it, please go back and check it out. The exi- Does God exist? We had our arguments. We had our, pers- uh, we had our ways to go about proving the existence of God. But for this one, what we're going to see as we get into this problem of evil, pain, and suffering is that, you know what? The more we try to answer this question... The actually the the more difficult the more questions get raised. So let's go ahead and now jump right into this. What's let's start off with a definition. What is evil? I feel like we all kind of know evil when we see it or hear about it on the news, but what is evil? So Saint Augustine calls evil a privation of good or 
for those of us who don't know what the word privation means, like me, uh, a stopping of good from occurring. Okay, evil is the prevention of good from occurring. Augustine is a greater good theologian. Greater good is in quotes here. He's a greater good theologian, meaning God allows evil in order for a greater good to occur. And I believe that is the um, general belief, general sentiment of many Christians. We go back to the famous verse from Romans, all things work together for good. And I I believe this is the verse that really defines how a lot of people, how a lot of people see evil, how a lot of people view evil, that if there is evil in the world, which there is, God is doing something, something greater with it. Now, as opposed to the past two weeks, or the past, yeah, the past two weeks, we've been looking at this from a very offensive perspective, if you want to look at it this way. What is apologetics? We talked about the different uh, approaches that can be taken to persuade and defend the truths of Scripture. And like I said last week, we looked at three, really more like six ways, but three ways that people go about to defend the existence of God. Today, we're 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 playing we're playing off or we're playing defense for sure this week. So we're going to talk about why is this a problem for us as Christians who maybe fall in line with Augustine of the greater good argument. It may be difficult for us to or to realize like why is this a problem for some people? Evil exists because God has a greater plan for it. The end. When you get into the philosophical side of things, as we will here in a moment, we're going to see actually it, it does get a little bit more complicated than that. So the first argument against God with the problem of evil is logical. There is a logical issue with the existence of God and the existence of evil. Can God and evil be lo- logically com- compatible? compatible? The answer, some would say, is no. The argument stems from the law of non-contradiction. So the law of non-contradiction is a philosophical idea that something cannot be and not be at the same time. Rufus is a dog. Rufus is not a dog. Both of those things cannot be true at the same time. And for some theologians, Uh, For some philosophers, I should say, for some people in the world, the idea of there being a benevolent, omnipotent God and the existence of evil cannot be at the same time. If God is all-powerful and benevolent and yet evil exists, something is not adding up. Epicurus, who was a philosopher, was a a Greek philosopher, that was, uh, is no is known for many things. One of them is for uh, his... Epicurus is uh, the man responsible for this issue that we have here of God cannot be benevolent and all-powerful and evil exists. It ha- Something's not working. Either God is not omnipotent, but impotent. He is not all-powerful, and so he can't do something about the evil, or 
God is not benevolent and actually enjoys the evil. And this is where the logical, because if evil exists and God's not doing something about it, that means he either isn't loving or isn't able to do something about it. Alvin Platingo uh, introduces an argument for us as Christians to respond to this. And this response that Platingo gives us is going to ruffle some feathers because in order for God to exist and for God to exist as we see him in scriptures as a benevolent, all-powerful God, and yet evil exists, we have to, sorry, hardcore Calvinists, we have to believe in free will. Free will has to exist in order for God to be all-powerful, benevolent, and evil existing at the same time. If God has truly given humanity and the angels the ability to freely choose to do good or evil and the intended purpose was for them to choose to bring about good upon creation, then we have an actual answer. In other words, to put it in a different way, believing in free will introduces a wild card into the situation. So evil exists, God exists as an all-powerful, as a benevolent God that we read about in scriptures, right? Both can exist because we screw everything up. We as humans and angels and the angels were given free will to choose to do good or evil with the intended purpose that we were going to choose to do good and bring about God's goodness and righteousness and holiness upon the earth through choosing to do good. But because of sin, sin factor, we now choose to do evil. And since God has given us the freedom to choose, he allows us to continue to choose. And like I said, this automatically gets into a much more complicated scenario now. Because again, if you're a very hardcore Calvinist, this idea of absolute free will is going to pose a problem. Even for me, who's a little bit more like a moderate Calvinist, this does pose some problems in my thinking. Plus, then, to me, you could twist this, go take this argument a step further and say, okay, well, then why doesn't God just do something about the humans and the angels? Why did he choose to give humans and angels free will to choose to do good and evil? This, as I said at the beginning, continues to complicate things. But again, we're just staying at this level of how can there be a God and evil at the same time, a God who we believe is all-loving and all-powerful? The answer is because we choose to do good or evil. We were created with the intended purpose to choose to do good. I think that is supported by Ephesians 2.10, personally, that we have good works that were preordained for us to do. I think that's maybe alluding to that a little bit. But now this does introduce a whole new issue of, well, how do we then 
like, why doesn't God do anything about the, the rotten humans who keep screwing everything up? Just trying to answer the question, evil, well, how can it exist with God? Well, you do have to believe in free will. So that's the logical issue. There's a logical breakdown for some people when it comes to the issue of evil existing. There's also an evidential argument. This comes from William Rowe, proposes natural evil, that there is just evil that occurs, and that evil happens, and there is no good that could possibly come from it. Uh, This would be the example of lightning strikes in a forest, and the forest catches on fire. Not necessarily the cause of a human, or an angel, well, well, demon at that point, uh, not necessarily chosen by man or supernatural being to for that to occur, and it just it's a natural occurrence, right? These bad things happen sometimes because of natural causes. Same with say, same with like if a animal maybe gets trapped in the woods somewhere, in a forest somewhere, and through very natural causes, again, not because of any human influence, again, this creature dies. And there's not necessarily any good that comes from that. It was a natural occurrence of evil. The argument then goes that this this gets away from the whole greater good as augustine was uh talking about there at the beginning of this conversation this idea that all things work together for good well it doesn't because sometimes bad things happen naturally that no greater good can come from so that means either greater good doesn't always happen because of the occurrence of natural evil or god cannot exist if there is no if there is this gratuitous evil that continues to happen one or the other either there is not always a greater good or god doesn't exist because there is this occurrence of gratuitous natural evil god does exist so gratuitous evil does not that is the rebuttal the rebuttal is actually very simple. All you have to do is reverse engineer it. And this gets into an argument, I believe it's from David Hume. Yes, it's from David Hume, that when it comes to this issue of the problem of evil, it really depends on where you are starting with. If you were starting with evil, then evil triumphs in the argument. If you're starting with God, then God triumphs in the argument. And you can see that here, that if gratuitous evil exists, then God doesn't exist. Okay, well, if you believe God exists, then gratuitous evil does not exist. Natural evil does not exist. Greater good does come from things. It really does depend on where and how you start the argument. You have to build up from God God wins. So keep that in mind as you are discussing the problem of evil. You have to start with God. You start with God and you build up. There's also a major assumption in Rowe's argument that 
we need to address, and that is that we somehow know every possible good outcome and can conclude that when a natural occurrence of evil happens, that there could be no good thing that happens. That is a huge presumption on our part that we somehow know every possible scenario, every possible good outcome or evil outcome that could happen in any given situation. It sounds like a strong argument because not good doesn't come from every scenario. God doesn't exist. It sounds like it's a foolproof argument, but actually it does crumble quite easily. As long as you start with the premise of no, God does exist. See last episode. And also just the, the finiteness of man's intellect. We can't predict every single possible outcome. And if anything, you know, going back to specifically like the, cre- uh, you know, like an animal dies of natural causes uh, at, at a young age, decomposes, takes, you know, fertilizes the ground, might become food for a prey animal. Like, there are potential good outcomes, even when maybe on a surface level, there, there doesn't appear to be any good outcome. So those are the two big critiques that are brought up against the problem against God when it comes to this concept of evil existing. There's four other quick arguments pro God that we I want to address quickly. God cannot do what is logically impossible. Okay, now that statement again gets into like a whole new set of questions that God cannot do what is logically impossible. For every seminary student who is listening to this episode, you have probably heard this debate at some point in the classroom of, could God create a rock that even he himself couldn't pick up? And that's where this is kind of coming from, of could God possibly not do something? And some Christians would be able to say yes, if it is logically impossible for him to do. Another argument for that is pro-God against the argument that evil exists and he doesn't, God's greatest desire isn't the eradication of evil. And that might be unsettling at first, at first hearing that God's greatest desire isn't the eradication of evil. But if you think about it for a second, God's intended purpose in creation was to create something that would continue to glorify him and in a way that would be relational in the creation of us and in angels. And so a, an outcome from our creation is the introduction of evil, the knowledge of good and evil. And so now this is a part of God's plan. However, it is not his greatest desire. His personal glory and our reconciliation would probably be come before that. God cannot remove moral freedom and evil. This gets back into the whole earlier conversation about free will. Could God just remove the free will from us? And the answer, 
at least in the way that the authors of our textbook see it, is that n- no, God cannot just remove the moral freedom to choose or evil from the scenario. This is That would be overstepping our free will. And finally, the greatest good is the ultimate destruction of evil. That is the final quick rebuttal that we can have that although the eradication of evil may not be God's number one plan, it is on the to-do list. (laughs) The ultimate good, the greatest good that can occur will be the full eradication of evil. And that is in the plans. Read the end of the book, folks. Read Revelation. Okay, now I want to pivot and talk more about suffering. We've been at this high level of can God and evil exist at the same time? Now we're going to we're going to pivot, we're going to get very personal and we're going to look at the problem of suffering, pain and suffering on a personal level. 2 Corinthians 4:17 says, "For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever." Okay, so we're going to keep that verse in mind as we continue to talk about the problem of suffering now, the words of Paul there. Why does suffering exist? Okay, so like the simple answer is because evil exists, right? But there's actually four, we're going to talk about here, four philosophical, well, not even philosophical, philosophical and theological views on why suffering exists. First, from the naturalistic view. In the naturalistic view, suffering is... mm, Suffering is avoidable. Suffering is to be avoided. Uh, They avoid the mystery of suffering by saying... um, saying things like life is pointless, that uh, there is a there is no grand plan in the end. This is the naturalistic view of suffering that you just kind of avoid. Why does this happen? You just avoid it. Life is meaningless. Life is pointless. This gets into nihilism, which sounds exhausting. Props to everyone who caught that reference. This is nihilism. This is an existential nihilism, which as a more religiously bent existentialist, I can say this is actually the one that I struggle with the most because it does still kind of fall in this framework of existentialism of life is pointless. Life is meaningless. Life is absurd. Sometimes I really feel like life is absurd. When you lose focus on God and his sovereignty in a situation or in the naturalistic view, if you don't believe that there is a God and a natural, er, that there is a God and that he is sovereign, when suffering occurs, don't address the, don't address it. It's just life's meaningless. These things happen. Then there's the pantheistic view on suffering. And in this one, um, like in Hinduism or Christian science, that is Christian science, the, the religion, not Christians who are scientists. Those are two different things. It's also not Scientology. It's a, that's, this, is a, this is a third thing, okay? Uh, in Hinduism or Christian science, you run from suffering. 
because what really matters in the pantheistic view is that is the spiritual and suffering is more often than not connected to the spiritual in some ways or physically emotionally intellectually relationally is the way that we suffer and so in in this type of framework in like hinduism you run from the mystery of suffering because it it, it doesn't matter essentially that your body is suffering what matters is the spiritual development within third view on suffering is finite godism and in finite godism god is not infinite which is why suffering exists because uh, he can't do anything about it which seems to that answer seems to come up quite a bit doesn't it of well why does this thing if there is something bad happening it seems to be a common response which even for us as christians i know for me myself i've i've been in this place before again that naturalistic nihilism is a little bit closer to home for me but we i think we've all been in that space before where it's like god are you really not infinite as a are you really not sovereign over everything because where where i'm in right now you look at the psalms of lament or it or even some of the imprecatory psalms in in the book of psalms um you see these like examples of man just like i feel so abandoned right now are you not sovereign and the mystery of suffering is that god can't do something about it but don't worry there is a fourth view and yes this is the one that we're supposed to have the christian theism view and in this one we embrace suffering we don't run from it. We don't dismiss it as something that doesn't matter because life is meaningless. We're not supposed to just assume that God is not sovereign and he doesn't care anymore. In Christian theism, true Christianity, we embrace suffering. We may not always have an answer to the suffering, much like Job, but suffering happens. We embrace it. We seek God in it, we seek community in it, and we, we grow through it. And I would like to point you all the way back, way back, to episode, I think it's three, Dark Night of the Soul, uh, talking about the, the Dark Night of the Soul, these times in our lives when we go through suffering, when life doesn't make sense, when life hurts, and God not just immediately bailing us out of it, but sitting with us and going being our shepherd through the suffering. So I would, I would point you back to that episode for more on this embracing of suffering. Let's talk now. I want to, you know, it's, it's all right and good for us to talk about philosophy and reason and logic and wrestle with these big questions, right? Right. You know, like this is, you know, go back to that apologetic. What is apologetics episode? Like that is apologetics. It's it's using all of these things. It's using archaeology and science and philosophy and reason and logic to um, defend and persuade the to the teachings of the Christian faith. But when it comes to this topic of evil and pain and suffering, arguing, <laughs> bringing up philosophy and reason and logic isn't going to do you much good when you're interacting with someone who lost their grandmother within the, 
recent times. It's not really going to help you when you lose your job. Maybe it might a little bit, but when a loved one pass away, when you lose a job, when there's yet another car repair that needs to be done, when when the rubber meets the road, some of these things aren't really going to be helpful. If you are sitting down with a grieving mother and you start the conversation off by saying, you know, the philosopher David Hume, you've already lost, okay? But at the same time, I, I really think we can do better. We can do better than what I like to refer to as the theological band-aid all the way back at the beginning, right? All things work together for good for those who love God. We, we use, and I would say often abuse this as like the one, one size fit all for every problem. Lost your job, all things work together for good. Spouse, spouse is having, uh, you're having problems, marital problems with your spouse, all things work together for good. Loved one passed away, all things work together for good. Racism exists, all things work together for good. Like it's our one size fit all for every issue that could possibly exist. That and the, you know, God's ways are not our ways. So just trying to find what our, you know, what, what God has for us right now. These are true. And so is these philosophical arguments that we've been looking at. Reason and logic is helpful. But when the rubber meets the road and we're sitting and we're, we're grieving with someone, we need to do better than just a, a theological band-aid. We don't necessarily need to quote David Hume, but we, we, we need to do better than the theological band-aids quote uh, the great philosopher herself taylor swift band-aids don't fix bullet holes like and the problem with theological band-aids as i see it is that it's it is this one size fit all issue it there is no nuance it's oh well this happened boom here you go problem solved and it's not life is messy and complex and you know Two different people could be going, two different couples could be going through marriage troubles for completely different reasons. A family could lose a loved one and everyone is experiencing that pain differently. Like we, we need to do better. And so let's make this pivot now, maybe a little bit less from the philosophy and get a little bit down into the nitty gritty now of, so what, what should we do? What should we do? when we are interacting with somebody who is going through suffering. Well, let's start with what not to do beyond just slapping a theological band-aid on it or quoting your favorite existential philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. One thing you could do is to absolutely avoid what happens in the book of Job, and that is the assumption that you are suffering because there is personal sin in your life. You have to avoid that. That is not the point of the book of Job. Even this comes up in the New Testament when uh, Jesus and his disciples come across, I believe it was a blind man, and the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Like Suffering is not a guaranteed result of sin, personal sin in a person's life. You, 
you have to avoid that. <laughs> Do not just assume or make someone feel like they have to repent because of some sin that they're not aware of. That's Scientology, actually. Don't do that, please. Don't slap a theological band-aid on it. Don't just start quoting St. Thomas Aquinas at them. And don't make them assume that there's some type of, this is some type of result of sin in their life. Okay, so what should we do then? As we go through the actual responses for suffering. Okay, so these first three are awkward, all right? Because the first two are punitive and discipline. Okay, so which totally, now I have to backtrack on what I just said. The key word on the story of the book of Job and the story of the blind man with the disciples is that suffering is not always, is not a certain response to personal sin in a per, in a person's life okay if you are suffering that does not guarantee a plus b does not always equal c not always there are times where it is possible that you are suffering because of sin in your life when it comes to punitive Possibly, uh, this is a punitive view of suffering: is you reap what you sow. If you're, there is scenarios where you are experiencing some form of suffering because of because of your actions. There's also the possibility. So that's punitive. That is punitive. That you you reap what you sow. If, if something is ha- if you're suffering in your life. And it's because you did sin in a way that caused this suffering. Okay, that that is a time for repentance. Si- si- similarly, with uh, discipline, there are passages of scripture that point to the reality that God does discipline his children when they are in some form of habitual sin. Now, if you are processing grief with somebody, again, don't rush to these don't don't rush to these and my guess is depending on the context the nuances of the situation you may be able to suss out if this is what's going on or not don't just assume that your bestie needs to repent because their grandmother just died that's super rude don't do that so that's the first two responses is that to suffering punitive you reap what you sow and discipline god is disciplining you for the sin in your life third is revelational and i think this is a another one that we abuse but it is true that sometimes in suffering god is teaching you something revelational god is revealing something to you in the suffering and i think we like i said i think we sometimes abuse this response that like, oh, God, God's teaching you something. Gotta, you got to pay attention. Like God is teaching you something. And yeah, I think we learn a lot about life when we pay attention. We learn about ourselves when we you know, pay attention to how we respond to things. And there are times where God may be teaching you a, a valuable spiritual lesson. But I just think for those of you who remember the classic Animaniacs from the 90s, every episode or 
most episodes ended after a whole, you know, 20 something minutes of wacky cartoons. They, they would stop and look at each other and go, what was the point of today's episode? And they would pull out the wheel of morality and spin it. Wheel of morality, turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lesson that we should learn. And then it would spit out like a fortune cookie type response that had nothing at all to do with anything that happened on the cartoon. And I feel like that's how we kind of treat the this approach to suffering of like just just god is teaching you something just spin the wheel of morality and you'll find out what god is trying to teach you yes you can learn something about life you are talking to the existentialist right now you can learn something about life through just paying attention and walking with god through life taking a shout out buddy walk with jesus and paying attention to what he's trying to teach you as you go through life, but it almost becomes like an obsession, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes it might not be just like this huge, like spiritual revelation. And now you understand all of life. You might just learn something about, you know, yourself. You might just learn something about uh, your church, your situation that you didn't know before. I recently, I haven't really, I haven't gone on record on this on the show, but I, six months ago now, was um, candidating, began the candidating process with the church. And let's just say, long story short, I'm not candidating for that church anymore. Um, Learned a lot. Nothing big, revelational, spiritual, truth-wise. I, I just learned something about the candidating process. So just just keep that in mind when, you, when you're sitting with someone who is suffering and you're encouraging them to like pay attention. What could you be learning? Don't make them feel bad if it's just like, well, you know, I, it turns out car repairs are super expensive. Yes, they are. And you... Do need to know that because it's stupid how expensive they are. All right. The fourth response to suffering is vicarious suffering for someone else. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Sometimes we experience suffering in life because we are taking something upon ourselves from someone else. And I think every, um, every, couple you know every spouse listening to this has had had that experience where you have had to suffer on behalf of your loved one because of illness or because of a loss of a family member i know i think it was back in 2021 when my wife and i got covid we both had it pretty bad she had it worse than me and so i had to pick up the slack and try to keep us somewhat functional as much as you can when you have COVID. And I my I had a little bit more suffering, but I chose that so that way my wife could have a little bit less suffering as she sat in bed scared because anxiety problems. So vicarious suffering. Next we have testimonial. Again, pretty self-explanatory. 
for us as Christians, when we go through suffering, this gives us uh, a, a story to tell. It gives us a testimony to tell of how Jesus went with us, how Jesus uh, did great things during this suffering. I mean, this whole section has been peppered with little stories and testimonials from my own life when it comes to suffering. So just keep that in mind. That is an encouragement you can give to somebody that in time, this is now a part of their story that in time when they choose, they can begin to use it as a way to encourage others and to glorify Jesus through the sharing of their story. Transformational up next. Suffering builds spiritual character. And again, I would point back to that Dark Knight of the Soul episode all the way back at the beginning for an example of how um, transformational going, embracing suffering can be as we grow spiritually from it. And finally, it is Christological to suffer. Suffering for Christ. Uh, Christ suffered, and Christ said that we would suffer on his behalf, which is, as I begin to wrap up this episode, another way that we like to use and abuse the um, area of suffering. I don't know if I really want to even get into all of this. Look, suffering for Christ, please read, please read books please read torture for Christ. Please, please read stories about martyrs. And maybe that'll help some of us realize that like what we are experiencing in our country isn't necessarily like pure evil that, you know, I'm sure there is somebody listening or people out there here in our country who have truly suffered because of Christ. You know, I wouldn't necessarily call it suffering, but I know there were awkward times at work to be a Christian. I think that might be a good word to use for it. Awkward at times. I was never persecuted for my faith. I've never would say I was suffering for my faith at work, but it, it, it was awkward sometimes, I would say. Um, I think big evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, likes to feel like they're suffering, likes to feel like they're being persecuted. And so, I would just like to offer the reality check that you're not, that it may be awkward. Maybe you don't like a change that is happening politically. Maybe you don't like something that is going on. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're being persecuted or that you're suffering. You might be overacting, overreacting a little bit. However, again, it is biblical. Jesus said we would suffer on his behalf. So, that's not to downplay those who have truly experienced a form of suffering for Jesus. Thank you for doing that. I believe you will be rewarded for that in heaven. A greater reward than some guy from the Midwest saying thank you. So that is our conversation today on pain and suffering and the problem of evil. It's complicated. It's messy. And we need to learn to both be able to articulate from a logical, reasonable, intellectual, philosophical way, theological way in this conversation. But we also need to learn how to get down into the nitty gritty and to come alongside someone who is suffering, who is experiencing pain, who has experienced evil, and not 
sweep it under the rug, slap a theological bandaid on it, not presume that they have just done something wrong and need to repent and not quote David Hume to them, but we need to be able to meet them where they are and walk with them, embracing the suffering as we are supposed to do, not running from it, not pushing it aside, not assuming God's not finite, but embrace it and see what God is doing through it. All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, please rate and review the show wherever you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else rating podcasts take place. Please hit the subscribe button if you haven't yet to continue to follow My Seminary Life or AMP as a whole to keep up with all four of the shows here on the network. You can head into the description of this episode to find links to important things. Follow My Seminary Life on Facebook and Instagram at My Seminary Life Pod. And if you ever want to send me a question, comment, concern, complaint, limerick, poem, you can send those to email seminarylife at gmail.com. One more time, that's email seminarylife at gmail.com. Next week on the show, we are going to be discussing, I know it might seem a little weird that we're just now going to get on this part of the conversation, but we're going to run it back and talk about some of these names that have come up the past few weeks. That's right, folks. Here's a bunch of apologists that you should know. That's next week here on My Seminary Life, but this is Brandon signing off, reminding you that theology is for everyone, so keep on studying.